Hi, this is Jesslyn Etchell, and I'm chatting with some of my favorite women in a series called Wildish Wise Women, Conversations with Everyday Goddesses. It's my passion to connect women and remind us that supporting one another is our greatest strength. These discussions are an extension of the in-person women's circles I lead in the Bay Area and will explore a variety of topics. Please note, we are adults having adult conversations. Subject matter and language may not be appropriate for young ears. Thanks for joining us. Well, today I am talking with Nicole Stewart, and she is a social worker and a yoga instructor, my favorite kind of people, with a focus on community engagement, public education, foster youth advocacy, and trauma-informed yoga. With more than a decade of social work practice in nonprofits and accountability work in K-12 education, Nicole noticed the need for radical self-care to discharge the toxic stress we absorb through our work. This awareness drives her to study the ways yoga and mindfulness affect our brains and bodies. Nicole teaches yoga and also offers self-care workshops to social service agencies and nonprofit organizations. She believes that self-care is a radical tendency that we must adopt if we are to sustain ourselves as service providers and human beings. Today, she's going to talk to us about radical self-care for everyday survival. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, as per usual for social workers, you're multi-passionate, so I can't wait to dive in. <laughs> yes. So we'll just take a few moments to just set this space and set the intention for our time together just with a few deep breaths. So you and I will we'll do it together and anyone listening can join in. We'll just take an inhale through the nose. And exhale out the mouth. A couple more like that. And may each woman who needs the wisdom of this call find her way here. May we speak from the heart and create a wave of peace that radiates out on a global level. May each woman remember her sacred nature and feel the value of her presence in this world. Nicole, what's your favorite thing about being a woman? Oh, I like that question. <laughs> um, my favorite thing, everything, really. I, I love our, our femininity. I love that women can be soft and strong at the same time. Um, yeah, I just... I like the perspective um, as a woman. Now, to be fair, I've never been a man, so I you know, I can't necessarily say men don't have that. But from what I can, you know, being in my body, um, that's what I like. I like that people come to us for comfort, and obviously, that's part of why I'm a social worker. But I, I really appreciate that about being a woman. Nice. Well, let's dive into the topic, and I would really like to start because clearly, you found kind of this this niche for yourself that really feels important I'm sure just to you personally but also to share with the world so I'm curious why specifically this area of radical self-care and then sort of what's your story behind finding that absolutely uh so yeah I started as a social worker very young uh probably in my early 20s and it started I was a communication professional working for a nonprofit that served children who were abused and I got to watch the process um, happening in court, and I got to watch the lawyers work on behalf of, this, of the children. 
And I knew there was something in the work that I was watching that I wanted to do. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a social worker or a lawyer. So I kind of asked around. I started talking to the social workers I was working with and the attorneys I was working with. And I thought I wanted to do law. So I talked to the attorneys and what they told me was kind of shifted my perspective. But I, they said, you know, if you really want to advocate for children, don't become a lawyer. Because if you become a lawyer, you have to, you're beholden to the law and the law does not protect children. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you want to be a, a, an advocate, true advocate for children, you have to go outside of the law, and, which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Right. A bunch of lawyers saying, yeah, don't do it. So <laughs> I, pivot, I pivoted towards social work and decided to go and get my master's. Uh, I was accepted to the Yukon uh, School of Social Work program, which I adore. I really um, learned a lot and grew a lot in my MSW program. And one of my first jobs out of MSW, while I was doing MSW work, I was a research assistant. Uh, one of them, there were two big projects I worked on. One was reunification of families. So kids who have been taken into foster care, really working to reunify them with their biological birth families. Mm -hmm. That was really eye-opening. And then the second one I did was, was interviewing sex offenders and reading through their files to understand from the perpetrator perspective how to prevent child sexual abuse. Wow. So you just went in really easy, you know, just ease your yeah, way in. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just dip my toes in, you know, one little thing at a time. Yeah. And, and it was interesting because I, you know, I went into these things because I was fascinated by them. And I am always a person who wants to understand why people do what they do and see what we can shift about that to make things better for everybody. So the sex offender work was actually very fascinating to me. Um, but one of the things I noticed was I was doing it with another student, a peer of mine. And within two weeks, she was done. She mm. came in one day and she said, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I can't read through these files anymore. I'm done. And she was visibly shaken and upset. And, you know, it kind of caught me off guard. And then I, we had to go and talk to our professor who was overseeing the research study. And she just immediately started apologizing to us. She's like, Oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I did not prepare you guys for this in any way you know, this is work I've been doing for 40 years. So I know what to expect. And I'm used to it. And I'm so sorry, I did not prepare you guys for, you know, the trauma, basically, that you were going to be reading about. Because right. as you can imagine, these are very graphic details of their offenses. So mm -hmm. um, but it was a very good learning experience. So that I hadn't burned out because for me, it was very fascinating. And I, I had a little bit of support to be able to process what I was reading. So that was my but that was my first awareness of kind of vicarious trauma or overwhelm or burnout. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so from there I, you know, I finished my MSW and my first job out again, just dipping my toes in <laughs> was, uh, working for a statewide rape crisis program. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A little, yeah, just a tiny bit. Um, yeah. so, so I was a grant initially a grant writer, um, and then moved into more community, community engagement around, um, for this, a statewide sexual assault coalition in Connecticut. Okay. Consacs. Uh, and that again was work that I was very passionate about. Um, I got to start doing work on college campuses, doing work, um, in the community, really raising awareness about sexual assault. Then I was offered the opportunity to kind of do one-on-one -on -one support for young survivors. And these were survivors from the age of five to 10. Oh, wow, I was young. Yes, very young. And I, I was excited to do the work um, for the for the obvious reason that there was a need. Um, and I did that work for a good year and a half. 
Um, it was weekly group sessions with these young children, trying to talk to them about what they had experienced and process their trauma. And it took about a year and a half of that for me to really hit a wall. And I, I, I joke in my presentations, I burnt out very spectacularly. <laughs> um, it was a, it was a breakdown of epic proportions. <laughs> you were like a and, firework, huh? <laughs> yes, girl. Yes, I was unstable and all. <laughs> uh, and but what happened for me is, was it was a burnout without much reflection. I, it was just a physical exhaustion. It was an overwhelm. It was, you know, my perception had changed of the world where I, I realized I had to get out when I couldn't see a father and daughter walking together and not assume that there was some kind of sexual abuse happening. Oh yeah. Like that was my saturation point. I was like, okay, not clearly not every father is doing this to their child. Your mindset is, is not okay. <laughs> you have to get out. Yeah. Uh, but what I didn't realize at the time was that my, the burnout, the vicarious trauma that I absorbed, the emotional impact of the work I was doing was also because I am a survivor myself. Uh, and for me, I was five years old when I was assaulted. Mm -hmm. And working with these five to 10 year olds, you know, working with kids who were my age when I was assaulted, really brought up a lot that I wasn't conscious of. Right. You know, it was it was vibrating in my body, the, the visceral reactions to the things I was hearing. And but I, I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have a way to describe what was happening. And I didn't have the awareness of oh, the work I'm doing right now is eliciting something in me from my past, and I haven't processed that yet. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, oh, okay, it's just this line of work. So I shifted, stayed in social work, but then went into education. And silly me thinking, oh, you know, there's no trauma in education. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yeah, I laugh a lot about that now. <laughs> um, but that, so I pivoted to education. And of course, as I'm working in education, doing communication work and, and assessment kind of work, um, I begin to notice one of the things that I had the privilege of doing was being an assessment coordinator, which is basically the person who helps teachers give the state assessments in a school district. Mm -hmm. it, I had the privilege of doing it over the shift from No Child Left Behind to Common Core. Um, and I say privilege because it was a lot of amazing work and seeing sausage being made in the educational world was amazing. And it was a brilliant learning experience for me. One of the things I noticed, though, is it was my job to train teachers on how to give the new assessments and, you know, formative assessments, summative assessments, midterm assessments, and then to take the data, look at what the data says, and then shift their instruction based on the data. If you can't tell, I'm a data nerd, so I love that work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I was hearing very clearly from the teachers that I was working with that they were becoming overwhelmed. Um, it was just becoming too much, too much change all at once. They had to change new curriculum, new standards, new assessments, new everything in the political landscape that was also kind of targeting teachers, budget cuts, you know, pink slips, the whole deal. Yeah. So I, I started to realize, okay, there's some trauma here. You know, the, these teachers, initially I felt like, okay, you know, it was like the rolled eyes get yourself together and deal with it, you know? Um, but then I started, you know, a little humble and started to realize like, no, this is a lot for, you know, I'm asking these individual human beings who already care a lot about the work they do to do so much more that's beyond their capacity. And one of the things we were noticing in public education is there were a lot of, a lot more children coming to school with trauma. 
so I shifted a little bit and started to really do my own work. Um, this is when I started to come to yoga a little bit more. I have always practiced yoga. I've been probably a practitioner for 20 years, but mm-hmm. my initial, <laughs> um, draw to yoga was purely for the yoga booty, like not even going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> yeah. Going to sugarcoat it. It was not to you know get into the yamas and niyamas. It was not about philosophy. It was not about oming or zen or no. It was well, I we want got that... you in the door. <laughs> exactly. You got me with the booty. <laughs> yep, yep. That's that's okay. It's good. It got you there. Exactly. Wherever you capture people. Yeah. Um, then I started to kind of think, uh, you know, notice a little bit more, and I, I think it also helped. Obviously, one of the things is I shifted. My MSW was in Connecticut on the East Coast. And then when I finished and my husband finished with his PhD, we moved to California. There was a lot more yoga out here in California. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So it just became more a part of my awareness of, okay, yeah, there's more yoga, but there's also more opportunity to dive in more to the theory and the philosophy of yoga. There are meditation places and retreat centers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's when I, about seven years ago was when I really dropped in to the yoga in the full capital Y yoga sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to see how, what I was learning and feeling in my body about yoga, it was helping me personally, um, as a, again, as a survivor of sexual assault, it was helping me to come back into my body and to feel whole again. And as a, as a worker, you know, as a, as a social worker and as a assessment coordinator and all these other roles, it allowed me to see very clearly that kind of the trauma that other people were expressing without taking it personally, you know, cause usually they're sitting in my trainings complaining and I'm like, well, you know, I'm an amazing trainer. Why are you complaining? <laughs> um, it wasn't about me. It was about everything else that was, you know, the content and, and everything else. So, right. and you, you're talking about this term vicarious trauma. So maybe you can share just a little bit more about this. Cause I'm sure you've studied at length. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Vicarious trauma. It's the trauma we absorb through the work that we do, specifically people work. Mm-hmm. Um, just knowing that, you know, if you've survived past the age of three, you've probably dealt with a trauma in your life, whether it was a natural disaster, uh, a move cross country, a, you know, a deployment of a, of a military family member, the death of a family member, or, you know, someone you love, any of those things that, you know, just are part of life. Um, but when we are working with people who are specifically trying to heal trauma or, you know, we spend a lot of time with people like a teacher would with a student, we tend to absorb some of the trauma reactions that people kind of give off. So, and I can get, a, I'll get into that a little bit more because that pulls into the radical piece of radical self-care. Yeah, and what we know is that that vicarious trauma shows up much the same as just if it were your own trauma, right? Absolutely does. It shows up exactly the same in the brain and in the body, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's almost indistinguishable. However, the challenge is for those of us who are absorbing it, we're often helping other people work through their trauma. So we're not paying attention to what's going on in our own bodies. Exactly, which is what was happening with you when you were working with the young ones. Exactly. You talk about this being radical, this radical self-care is what you're asking for. You're not asking for regular self-care. You're asking for radical self-care. And and why is that? Yes. And I know that that term radical right now is, is kind of being played out a bit. So people tend to roll their eyes. But for me, radical, it, the word itself means grasping at the root, getting to the, the real root of what's going on. And with self-care, their general self-care is, you know, bubble baths and massages and pedicures and manicures and vacations and happy hour and 
it's a lot of external things that make you feel good and make you forget about the challenges in your life. And I, I subscribe to all of those things. <laughs> um, but for me, what I noticed was that kind of self-care wasn't getting to what I needed. Uh, so I had to go a little deeper and, and the radical self-care is yes. Radical self-care is, are, have you had enough to drink? Have you eaten anything? Have you had enough rest? Have you had enough connection with another human? Uh, you know, those, have you exercised the basics mm -hmm. as well as recognizing what in you from the, your history and your past is being triggered and reactivated by what it is that you're doing in your daily life. Whether it's you're a teacher and you have kids in your class who are dealing with a trauma and it, you're, you know, you're absorbing it or you're a social worker, certainly social workers, obviously social workers, nurses, clinicians, um, therapists, counselors, anyone who, who specifically is working with other people's trauma obviously is absorbing it. But in general, like dentists can absorb trauma from yeah. their patients. You know, doctors, even though they're treating a physical ailment, can absorb, uh, you know, psychic trauma from their fam from their patients. So that's where I, I felt the, the self-care that I was reading about and learning about just wasn't deep enough. And that's where the radical comes for me. And so that's actually really like self-study and self-reflection. Yeah. And, and really digging into self-compassion and self-love mm -hmm. and, and understanding what it means to be alive and in your body, not just going through the motions, getting through every day. Um, being very, you know, mindfulness was another, another thing, aspect that came into it for me. I, yoga was a practice, a physical practice and a phys philosophy that I was ascribing to. Mm -hmm. But when I first experienced mindfulness and that, that I can't put to words how it felt in my body, but it, I, I just immediately, like after I opened my eyes, after a short body scan practice, I, the words that came out of my mouth were, I have to share this with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was immediate. Like I have, other people need to feel this. <laughs> if I can feel it, given everything I've been through and everything I'm holding in my own brain and heart, other people can, and they need to. Um, and that's kind of where I started really pushing in where the radical self-care for me is yoga and mindfulness and understanding how our brains and our bodies are connected and how we can move and breathe through the trauma that we both experience ourselves directly and we absorb through our experiences with other people. Yeah. Well, what, what's coming to mind for me is you must see that this isn't getting shared, obviously, because you are really about meeting a need. I can see that. <laughs> and yes. so that's why you, you're sharing this stuff. But what, like, what's the gap that you're seeing in, in education system, not just for young kids, but also with the teachers and with social service professionals and all of those people that do this good work, what are they not learning, so to speak, or are not understanding about this, this self-care work? You know, I've been very shocked uh, by how little we talk about self-care, even in the social work world where we know we are dealing with trauma. We know, like they're, in education, you know, it's like, oh, well, no, I'm just here to teach these kids how to read. And yes, you may have a child in your classroom who has slept in a car that night or who is dealing with abuse at home, but it's going to be you know, for the most part, you're going to have a healthy class with kids who are there ready to learn and get got fed and slept and those kind of things. Yeah. In social work, you know, you're dealing with trauma. Like, you know, the only reason you are dealing with a family is because there is something horrible that has happened and it's your job to help get them back to normalcy. But even in those environments, even with people who work specifically with trauma, there is no conversation about vicarious trauma or self-care 
and there is very little support for it. So for example, going through my MSW program, most MSW programs are, it's a master in social work. It's usually two, two years long. Mm -hmm. I think I heard the word self-care twice and there was never a class on self-care or trauma. And when I remember asking one teacher, you know, how do you deal with all of this that you, you know, this is a lot to take in. How do you deal with the world? And, and the response I got was, oh, well, sometimes I go to the opera. <laughs> and, you know, like, here well, I am. What if I don't like the opera? <laughs> or I'm too broke. I mean, I was a, you know, 22-year-old yeah, college student. I'm like, I don't, I can't, the opera, I can barely go to Taco Bell, you know? <laughs> uh, so that was not a good enough answer for me. And what I saw in social work was those people who've been in it long enough, they just say, well, you just suck it up, you do what you need to do, and you, mm -hmm. you know, deal with it. And it's this kind of superhero mentality, right, of, well, I'm the social worker. I can't have any problems in my own life. I'm the one who's supposed to be giving solutions to these people. Yeah. So we just ignore the, what's happening in our own lives. And it became much more clear to me when I started advocating for foster youth. Um, I am a CASA, which is Court Appointed Special Advocate, and it's a volunteer program anyone in the world can do. If you're 18 or over, you get trained on how to advocate in court for foster youth. And... I picked up a case that was one, one young man, a teenage boy, and then I ended up picking up also his siblings. So I had three teenagers <laughs> to advocate for. And what I noticed was as we were going through the system, as I was going through the system with them fr from group homes to court, to school, to visits with parents, whatever it was, there was no awareness of how the system was traumatizing these kids. So yes, of course, you're removing kids from their home. And that alone is traumatizing. Like imagine any child in your personal life. Mm -hmm. And then imagine them being taken away from the only family they know and moved into a stranger's home for who knows how long, like it's traumatic. Yeah, for sure. And then there were th situations in the group homes where they, you know, if, if the kid didn't make their bed the way the, the group home manager liked, they would say, Oh, well, you, you have a seven day notice, you have to get out of here in a week. Mm -hmm. Um, and it would elicit a whole bunch of meetings and, and court dates and all these things. So I was just watching how the system was traumatizing the kids. And I remember at one point being very frustrated with one of these social workers. I, I there was a, the kids every year get a school, a school, uh, clothing stipend. My, you know, school starts usually in August. Yeah. My kids didn't get their stipend until November. And I went off on the social worker. I said, you know, this is a paperwork issue. All you had to do in July was put in a piece of paperwork so these kids could get closed before school. Now it's November. They're just now getting this allowance. This is ridiculous. Like these kids need a normal life. And as I was unloading on her, it was just kind of, for me, I was like, you know, you're a social worker. You're my fellow social worker. Get your shit together and deal with this. Like make this work for these kids. Why did you get in this job if you didn't want to do what's right? Mm -hmm. And I had to slow down a little bit because what I realized in talking with multiple social workers was, they were being given way too many cases. Their caseloads were ridiculously high. They were not being given any additional training other than their master's degree. So like there was no new training on dealing with trafficking victims. There was no new information on dealing with transgender, transgender youth. There was no new information on dealing with, um, you know, we were finding that young girls were being recruited out of group homes by gangs and pimps. There was no new training for them. So they're being asked to deal with a huge caseload with very complex problems. Also no training on autism and different disabilities with our kids that we we're finding. And there was no support for self-care. I did ask one of the social work managers, I said, you know, do you guys have any kind of support for your, your own mental health? And 
she said, well, yeah, they have a Zumba class. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's not quite it, but okay, that, that's the start. <laughs> and I said, well, tell me more. Like, how do you take the Zumba class? How often is it? Blah, blah, blah. They offered it during the, during the day, but these social workers actually had to take their vacation time to take a Zumba class. Oh, no. And oh, all no. I could think of was like, I, I laughed. I was like, you're kidding, right? And she's like, no, we, if we want to go to the Zumba class, we have to take vacation time. And I, I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I started to talk to some managers that I was coming in contact with through my, um, through my work and just asking and saying, hey, are you interested at all in, in understanding more about self-care and supporting the self-care of your workers? I didn't get much traction for a year or two, but in the last year and a half, what's been happening is these agencies are having a ridiculous amount of turnover. Yeah. They are hiring someone new, training them on the internal you know, issues, and then within six months, that person is burnt out and gone, and then they have to do the whole thing over again. They, some agencies had units that were supposed to be 20, you know, staffed at 20 that were at five. <laughs> so the wow. five people that were there were then getting the caseloads that should have been given to 20 people. So as I was realizing this was happening, it was a perfect arch, arc of time where I was kind of amping up my offerings. At the same time, these agencies were starting to say, oh, wait, we're in a lot of trouble. We're spending so much money to hire people that we can't retain. And this is just costing us money. It's We're suffering in our outcomes and our bottom line. We need help. So it was about last year that I, that got some traction. And I really got to, you know, some agencies pulled me in to do uh, retreats with their staff, to do self-care conversations, to talk about vicarious trauma. And I can't tell you, Jocelyn, every single group I went to was so hungry for this. They were like, thank you finally for recognizing that we are, we are also being traumatized by this work. And it's not weak to ask for help. It's not a bad thing to take your vacation days. Cause that's what I was learning too. In some of these agencies, if you took a vacation, it was all okay, but you were going to get side eye from everybody. Like, Uh oh, you're taking the week off. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. You're taking a mental health day. Mm, Okay. Because we don't have to do that, so you shouldn't be able to. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, these people's lives were, I mean, there were divorces happening from these these social workers. Their kids were feeling neglected because they were spending all their time dealing with the kids at work and not their kids at home. Wow. I mean, I was, you know, eating disorders, addiction, all these things that were happening in the lives of my fellow social workers. And what I realized was we lose the good ones, right? So if you can't maintain yourself and your sanity and your wholeness in a job that requires you to show up fully prepared to deal with what's coming, you, we lose those people and we have to keep really good, amazing teachers. We have to keep amazing social workers, nurses, doctors, therapists. Like we have to keep the good ones. And the only way to do that is if we support their self-care and understand what, what is absorbed in the work that we do. Yeah. Oh gosh. I've had friends that just leave the field completely and they go work at a bank or I had one friend that became an actor for a little while and just like <laughs> as far from it as they could go. Yes. And I watched that happen, especially as in education, as we shifted from no child left behind to common core, a lot of teachers, if they could retire, they retired, but even some young ones, um, you know, said, yeah, this is, I can't handle this. This is for the birds. I'm going to get out of this. And the sad thing about that is no one goes into teaching or social work just because they don't have have anything else to do. Like people come to these, you know, like no one just shows, like becomes a social worker. Like, oh, I don't know how I got here. Um, so, so I know people come with a passion and they come right. for two reasons. Either you had an amazing childhood and you want to make sure every kid in the world has the same childhood you did, 
or you had a not so amazing childhood and you want to make sure no other kid has to deal with what you did. And no matter how you come to this work, good because you had a good experience or a bad experience, you come with your full heart and prepared to give it all for the families that you work with, whether it's little kids, older folks in hospice, whatever. And to not be supported in that and to not have that validated and recognized is so heartbreaking. And then I see some amazing social workers and teachers just getting out and it's just a loss for all of us. So that's, you know, that's where I really had to come in harder with the, okay, we have to do this radical self-care. We have to talk about the vicarious trauma. And the minute you say vicarious trauma to a social worker or teacher and you explain it, they're like, Oh, that, that's, <laughs> that's what that is. is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and exactly. I, and I feel fortunate that we did actually talk about self-care and vicarious trauma in my graduate program, but I still feel like there was a gap because it was just like a word that was thrown around. Oh, and self-care is really important and you really have to do some self-care, but mm-hmm. I don't, feel like anyone showed us how or even supported us in doing it. It was just a word that was thrown around and it didn't hold a lot of weight. Yes. Because there was no follow through. And and I even tried when I when I worked in a hospital, I said, Hey, actually it was both of my jobs I offered to do this. I said, Hey, can I offer a yoga class? I wasn't even a yoga teacher yet. I was just gonna put on <laughs> a yoga video and we were gonna do it. <laughs> and they're like, Sure, you can do it on your lunch if you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on your own time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then I offered to do I was studying energy healing. I offered to give like healing touch sessions to my co-workers and they're like sure you can do that if you can do all your other work too mm-hmm. and so right. then I'm like well I can barely get my other work done <laughs> exactly well and that's what you know it was funny I did a, um, a self-care presentation for a local department of children and family services every city state has them CPS whatever you want to call them mm-hmm. and it, I, it was supposed to be about 60 people and it ended up being about 30 and I was like oh you know this is a lot less a lot fewer folks than I had thought what, you know, was there something going on today, whatever. And the manager without even the hint of irony said, well, you know, we offered folks that they could either come to the self-care presentation or they could stay at their desk and catch up on, on court paperwork. So most of the people are probably at their desk catching up on court paperwork. Oh, <laughs> and I just, I, I didn't even know what to do with that. I was like, so you had an opportunity to let everybody have an hour to themselves. <laughs> and that, you couldn't even do that. It wasn't even like, please go and do this. We will support you in your paperwork afterwards or whatever. So it does tend to be a word that people use, but to be very honest, I just think now looking back, I think the older social workers just didn't know how to teach it to us because they weren't actually doing it themselves. That very well could be. Yeah. That was just my experience that it was thrown around as an importance, but then how do we actually do it was still left sort of a mystery. Right. And the, the challenge has been because of my, the self-care that was taught to me was you have to have money to do it. You have to have money to go shopping and retail therapy. You have to have money for happy hour. You have to have money for a massage and money for a vacation, money for mani-pedi. And I didn't have money when I was in grad school. I don't know about anybody else, but I was broke right. <laughs> um, trying to you know rub nickels together. So for me, it was a donation-based yoga class that I found. Um, you know, it was, and it was Rodney Yee's AM PM yoga VHS tapes. Nice. <laughs> if anyone listening, you know, a little kickback to the eighties, nineties, <laughs> um, what's the VHS now? Yeah. Um, and, and it was really just, again, flailing around and figuring it out myself. And it, like I mentioned, I didn't figure it out. I, I was barely, barely touching the surface to the point where I had to have a major breakdown for me to realize like, this is not working. 
I love social work. I love, I even love rape crisis work. I love being able to, to, again, I had a horrible experience and I want other people to have a better experience. I love doing that work and I can't do it if I'm not taking care of myself, period. So if someone is thinking, okay, self-care, radical self-care, what might that look like? And they really haven't tried out anything on their own. What would be kind of a step one that you might recommend? I have a three-step kind of approach to the to kind of the the radical self-care. The first one is you have to be able to notice when you're feeling trauma, when you're feeling that vicarious trauma. The noticing is the hardest part because we we're so eager to numb ourselves out or distract ourselves from anything that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That even though, you know, even if we have a, a day at work where we're so overwhelmed and we've just absorbed a lot, we tend to just kind of say, oh, well, whatever. It's just the day I've had. Let me go to happy hour. Let me go get some drinks. Um, or, Instead you know what? Naming it, saying this is the trauma and I'm feeling it right now. Exactly. And that's step two is name it. So the first wow. step is notice it. You have to be able to just pay attention. And this is where mindfulness comes in. Pay attention to how your body is feeling when something is happening. Because what happens is sometimes you'll feel like a tension in your chest or you'll feel a, you know, tightness in the chest, you'll feel a drop in your belly. You feel these things as you're going through your day. Mm -hmm. But again, like we're ignoring it. We're numbing it out. We're just saying, oh, whatever, you know, my belly dropped, but whatever. It's just because I, maybe I didn't eat it today. Um, But it's paying attention to how the body feels. And maybe it is literally, oh, I didn't eat lunch today. Let me go eat something. That's, Mm -hmm. that's radical self-care, right? Um, And I always do this in every presentation. I I say, raise your hand if you've gone through a full day of work and not gone to the bathroom. Mm. everybody raise their hand. Now I say, then raise your hand if you've gone through a full day of work and hadn't eaten anything and coffee doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of people raise their hand, right? Because we get so locked into the work we're doing that we don't even take five minutes to go to the bathroom. Like that's how little we care for ourselves on a busy day, right? Mm -hmm. So it's that, it's noticing it. It may just be noticing, wow, I really have to go to the bathroom right now. I'm going to take a five-minute break. And I'm going to be okay with the fact that I'm not at my desk for five minutes. <laughs> yeah. um, then the second part is naming it. And you, it's exactly what you said. You have to be able to say, okay, why is my chest tight right now? Oh, it's because I just had this phone call with this, this mother. And what she was sharing with me was really, really hard for her to get through. And it just, you know, I can feel it in my body. It may be I'm hungry right now. Um, and again, I think I, I always joke, but hangry, I think is the perfect self-care word. The perfect hangry a lot. I know that very well. (laughs) So does my husband. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Everyone in your vicinity, right? Yep. Um, (laughs) It's a perfect radical self-care word. Cause what it's saying is I'm noticing that I'm feeling a little agitated. I'm getting snippy with people. I'm short with people. And the reason is because I'm hungry and what I'm going to do to alleviate this tension in my body is I'm going to eat something like hangry is a perfect word for noticing and naming something. And there's also research that shows that when we name an emotion, it actually deescalates a little bit of the force of that emotion, the energy of that emotion. Mm -hmm. So even literally being able to say, I'm angry, I'm pissed off, or I'm happy. Like this is exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm so nervous. I'm excited. What it does is you're, you're verbalizing it. So you're getting it out of the body and it doesn't take away the whole feeling, but it just lessens it a little bit. And actually, there's there are studies that show it it shifts that that message in the brain as well. So it's notice it and name it. And then the last one is move it. 
And it's literally, you have to do something about what you've noticed you feel and you've been able to name it. Now you have to do something. So that hangry again, right? I'm noticing, I'm agitated, I'm irritated. I'm going to say out loud, I'm hungry. And then I'm going to eat something so that I can get over this and be nicer. It's like that's the Snickers bars uh, commercials, right? (laughs) (laughs) You need a Snickers because you are not yourself. Uh Um, So that's a, a good example. But it could also be, you know, I just had this really intense phone call with a parent, whether it's, you know, I'm calling a parent about an F that their kid has, or I'm calling a parent about a, you know, a supervised visit that they have with their child. And I feel tension in my chest. I can say out loud, oh, my chest feels really constricted or, you know, I feel really uncomfortable or "Mm, this doesn't feel good. Or what happens and what I often talk about with young kids is if you can't name an emotion, what color does it like? What color does it have? You, so sometimes kids will say, "Oh, I'm seeing red. I'm so angry. I'm seeing red." Okay, that's good. We can work with that, right? Um, but being able to say, "Oh, I feel this tightness in my chest," and then being able to say, "Okay, I have to move this out." So I'm going to stand up and take a walk around the building outside. Something as simple as that. I have to move this energy out of me and through me. And it could be I'm just going to sit here at my desk and shake, you know, f- flap my hands and shake it out. Mm-hmm. It can be, I'm going to sit here and, and ground myself into my chair and take three deep breaths. It can be, I'm going to call my best friend and, you know, make a plan for this weekend and that will make me feel better. Whatever you have to do to move that energy through your body, otherwise it gets stuck. And that's what happens when, when we, when we compound trauma after trauma and we don't move that energy and we don't pay attention to it, it gets stuck in our body and it impacts our immune system. It impacts our relationships with other people. It impacts our perception of ourself and of the world. Uh, you know, when, and that's one of the kind of first awarenesses of burnout is when you start to have a negative perception of other things. Um, when you start to feel helpless about every situation, when you start to, you know, when people just say, oh, everything sucks. <laughs> right. Um, and like when you thought all the dads and daughters were in abusive situations. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, because that shifts your worldview. And it also it changes your brain pattern. It actually vicarious trauma impacts our brains and our bodies. And it makes us different people. It makes us different people than the people who came into this work initially with a gung ho attitude and, a you know, the the fire to change the world. And sometimes that 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 passion that we bring is, uh, is sometimes used against us, or we're told we're naive, or oh, you're wait till you've had a few years into this, you know. Um, mm. But, but, and I've even had that passion, you know, people say, oh, you're so passionate and it's meant as a dig. It's meant as a like, oh, you're not very rational. You're just, (laughs) you know, everything is a big deal. But I think it's beautiful when we get into a a job and we, or we start work and we feel like we can actually make change and we have to keep that feeling. And the only way to keep that feeling is if we're taking care of ourselves, we're moving, you know, stagnant and, and negative energy through our bodies and that also becomes an example to the people that we serve, right? Oh, absolutely. We have to show them how to take care of themselves. And if we're not doing it. Yeah, then they're, gonna, they're not taking any advice from us. And again, I learned this with my foster kids. Every single person who talks with the foster kids talks to them about personal responsibility. It became a mantra. Well, you have to take personal responsibility for your actions. You have to. Absolutely. Of course you do. But you're talking to kids whose parents have not taken personal responsibility for their own actions. And that's why these kids are in foster care. Right. And quite frankly, these kids, and this is what I love about foster kids, they smell hypocrisy a mile away <laughs> and they will call you out. If you talk to them about personal responsibility, they're going to call you out about your overeating. <laughs> they're going to call you out about the fact that you don't exercise. 
They're going to call you out about the fact that you curse too much, even though you tell them not to curse. They're going to call you out on, on something that you probably didn't even know you were showing them. <laughs> Their bullshit and, meter works really well. <laughs> oh, it is on. And I love that about them. They sniff it and, and they will call you out and they, it's not going to be nice when they do it, right? Like these kids can dig. Um, and you know, it, I love that about them. They're saying, how dare you talk to me about personal responsibility when you have not taken responsibility for your own life? And they're not wrong. You know, and that was the other awareness for me is I can't talk to them about making the right choices and, you know, being honest and, you know, taking care of themselves, right? Like you have to take care of yourself. You have to take, you know, calm down when you're angry and express your happiness when you're happy. I can't expect them to do that if I'm not also doing that, if I'm not also showing that example. And like I said, they can tell that. So that's, that's been, you know, my foster kids have really (laughs) elicited a lot of this from me. Well, Um, that's that self-reflection and understanding of what's going on inside. Absolutely. And, and allowing them, because that's the thing, these kids that I work with, they, they have a lot of anger and a lot of trauma that they don't even know how it's, you know, it comes out in ways that they haven't even been aware of. Um, and for them, just, just having small conversations with them about how their brain works and how the amygdala and the hippocampus and, you know, how the limbic system works when fear is involved and the fight, flight and freeze response. And we, that's, a, that's for another podcast, I think, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. All that information is so helpful though. When we sort of, even just the basic understanding of, of how the brain works, then we can, that, that helps in the naming of it. It does. And it, it almost, it depersonalizes it, right? So what people have to recognize about emotions is emotions are emotions and they have energy and that is all. (laughs) And we attach so much meaning to different emotions that keeps us stuck in patterns. So if you're angry, just be angry. It's a, anger is not bad or good. Anger has a lot of energy behind it and anger can move you to action. It's beautiful. Sure. Think about the last thing you got pissed off about. You probably did something about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I always talk to my clients about how depression is a lower vibration. And once you get angry, then you know, you can move past it because it'll help you do something. Exactly. Exactly. But, but recognizing like I depersonalizing it. Right. So I am feeling anger, not Mm. I am an angry person. Right. Or I am feeling depressed. I am not a depressed person. I am feeling anxious. I am not an anxious person because when you say I'm an anxious person, I'm a depressed person, then there's no hope. Then it's just, Oh, this is who I am. Mm. That's it. You know? Well, and that ties back into the mindfulness because we notice our emotions because they're just going to shift. They're not going to stay that way always. We notice as they come and inevitably they'll go. Right. And if we can watch that process, if we can literally like, and you know, again, science tells us that the actual chemical reaction of an emotion in our brain only lasts 90 seconds. Right. So if you are anger, angry, that anger is only going through your body for 90 seconds and it's done. But because we're human and we have beautiful big brains that ruminate and project, we then take that 90 seconds of chemical reaction and expand it for, you know, five years. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm still pissed about that thing. That girl did that one time and right. she knows what she did to me. Right. <laughs> Instead of just saying like, okay, I'm feeling anger. I'm, I'm absolutely righteous in my anger. I'm allowed to be angry and now it's going. Yeah. What's next? You know, being excited about noticing our emotions and being able to not react, but choose a response. Like that's the basics of mindf- mindfulness. And when we can do that in a daily life, maybe practicing with our spouse or our kids, <laughs> there's plenty to practice there, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, <laughs> then we can bring it into a bigger practice with the people we work with, the people we work for, um, you know, the people we run into daily life. So yeah, someone might piss you off. Can you just notice 
okay, what this person just did was wrong and it bothered me and now I'm going to let it go. Or are you still cursing the person that cut you off in traffic this morning? Right. You know? <laughs> and then that's on you because you're just carrying that with you all day long. That person probably has no memory or even knew that you were mad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I find that happens too with, you know, people create a story and then they get worried about something. And then when they check in with the other person, they realize that other person wasn't even thinking about that. So they've created a whole, you know, day of worry or a week of worry or shoot, let's be honest, more than that of worry right. for no reason, <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, and that's really hard to not do because again, as humans, that's what we do. But to be able to say, you know, I don't know what this other person is thinking. This is what I'm worried about that they're thinking. But until I check in with them, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my energy worrying that they, you know, oh my gosh, this person thinks I'm so stupid because I missed, I didn't send this one email. And then you check in with them. They're like, what email? Oh, I was expecting something from you. Oh, I didn't even notice. It's okay. Um, so that kind of not, not projecting, (laughs) being very much in the present, paying attention to what we're feeling in our brains and our bodies, noticing it, being able to name it and then being able to move it out. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that you're sharing this work and I'm glad that the agencies are picking up on how important it is and that they really need it in order to sustain their good workers and and just even workers in general, people to stick around and take good care of themselves so that they don't have to, you know, churn and burn from this kind of work. Is Is there anything else that you wanted to share or anything else that feels important? I think we need another a whole other hour to talk about. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly have a ton to share, and I really appreciate how educated you are on the subject that you really dive in and and I see, I see all the books you read. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a nerd. Um, I just I think I would just share with with those who are listening, especially because this podcast is targeted to women. We as women absorb a lot, and we often may feel that we are you know, that's just our role is to absorb, absorb, absorb. And we don't ever get to stop to say, you know what, I've had enough. I can't take any more on. And in fact, I need someone to help absorb some of what I'm dealing with. And I would really just encourage us as women to stay aware and awake about what's happening in our brains and our bodies and ask for help when you need it. You know, try to find a community of people that, that agree and not agree with everything you say, obviously, but, but understand this need for self-care and for, companionship and for community. And just, you know, if you find something that in your life that you are passionate about, but it's hard, self-care is the way to to go. You have to focus on, yes, the basics of eating, drinking, exercising, sleeping, and getting enough connection. But you also have to really dig deep and say, what in me is being elicited by what in this other person? And how do I shift that out of my body and, and, you know, be able to do this work in a very whole way. I I talk a lot about, you know, if you really want to help other people with their trauma, you didn't create the trauma. You can't absorb it all. You can't fix it all. But what you can do is with each interaction with those you serve, you can be a grounded and attuned and regulated presence. Mm, Say that one more time. All you can do is become be when you're in the presence of that other person is be a grounded, attuned and regulated presence and present. You have to, you know, if you're grounded, if you're attuned to what's going on in your own body, if you are regulated, you know, you're not feeling overwhelmed at the moment Mm -hmm. and you are present, Mm -hmm. that other person will notice that and will appreciate that. And that just that little bit of balm can help with whatever they're dealing with. So you don't have to have all the answers. 
You don't have to fix their trauma. You don't have to take it on. Just be that grounded, attuned, and regulated presence for them and take care of yourself and stay in the work. That's beautiful. Thank Thanks. you for tying it back into to the women. That That's important. Absolutely. I just have a couple questions for fun. I know mm-hmm. this, one's, this one's going to be really hard for you, but what's one book <laughs> that changed your life? Oh, that changed my life. Mm-hmm. Recently, honestly, I would say it's a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. That is, has been my new Bible and I give it as gifts. I think I've given like seven away. (laughs) Um, it truly, every page is an aha and an awareness of, Oh, that's why I do that. Oh, that's why he does that. Oh, that's why she does that. (laughs) Um, I just finished it and I got to see him up in San Francisco. And I think the whole world needs to read that book. Quite honestly, every graduating high school senior should read that book. It should be like required reading for humans. Yes, absolutely. It's like a, how does your body work? Like, you know, exactly. And I could read it again and again. I mean, I finished it, but I could just start again at page one and learn something new. I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I keep going back to that book. So that would, yeah, that'd be the one. Yay. Okay. Um, (laughs) how about favorite yoga pose? Oh, favorite yoga. I have to say happy baby. Happy baby is my favorite. And you know, it's funny because I do trauma informed yoga and that's like the number one no, no pose. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't ascribe to that as a trauma informed yoga instructor and as a survivor of trauma, I refuse to limit the poses that are available to survivors. I just think that's ridiculous. So happy baby, of course, it's a very vulnerable pose, but it's such a great hip opener. And I find actually when I work with survivors, they get themselves into happy baby. Like it's an, a pose that they go to immediately because it just feels right. Um, yeah. so yeah, happy baby is my go-to. Awesome. And then <laughs> and do you then- have a favorite quote? I do. Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> it is an Audre Lorde quote that says, um, when I, dare to be powerful, to use my voice in the vision of, in the service of my vision, it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. And that quote came to me when I was a brand new baby social worker and I had to do a home visit and I was scared out of my mind to go into this home. So I'm sitting in the car, literally like talking myself into it. And I just said, damn it, Nicole, there's a kid in that house that has to live here. All you have to do is go and visit. This kid has to stay here. Get your butt in the house right now. (laughs) It doesn't matter how afraid you are. This kid needs you right now. Get in there. And then I found that quote later and I was just like, oh, that's what it is. It it doesn't, when I dare to be powerful and to use my voice and the service of my vision, it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. Love that. Well, that's a good note to end on for me. (laughs) Chills over here. Thanks for doing the good work that you do. Absolutely. Thank you for the work you do. Yeah, I appreciate you in the world. And um, we probably could do a repeat. I haven't had any repeat guests yet, but I do have some some topics that we could re-explore. So we'll absolutely, to, we'll have to do it. This was fun. As, All right. As fun as, as trauma talk can be, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what my husband always says. Oh, you're going to traumatize some other people? Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'll make sure everyone knows how to find you and can connect with the work that you do. And hopefully um, you'll continue and spread, spread it wider beyond the Bay Area and out to the world. Oh, I like the way that sounds. <laughs> yes, me too. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you so much, Jessalyn.